Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, before we get started, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, Sportsman's Guide. Check out a link in the description below. Hey, guys, welcome back to the Survival Show podcast. I'm producer Ben. And before we get into today's Manly Musings segment, let me just remind you to hit that subscribe button. That way, you never miss any of our segments or shows. As you listen today, I hope this segment gives you some great food for thought to chew on for your day ahead. All right, let's get into it. Here's the man, the myth, the legend, Master Craig. Hey everybody, this is Craig Cottle, director of Nature Reliance School and co-host of the Survival Show podcast. Thanks for joining me for another Manly Musings. Glad you're here with me. We really appreciate everybody that's given those those five-star reviews over on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you're listening to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate it. Had a really heavy topic last week. Told you I'd try to come in with something a little bit lighter fare. Uh, I do have something that's not as heavy and deep thinking, but is probably as equally important. If you listen to me, watch me on video, or have ever come to my classes or follow me on any of my social media platforms, you know I am a huge fan of win-win situations. For those that come to class, I like to over-deliver. For those that buy my books, I like to over-deliver. And obviously here on the Survival Show podcast, we're doing everything we can to over-deliver for you as well. We have one of those win-win opportunities today. Today, what I wanted to do is give a huge shameless plug for my book that comes out today as I record this. So as you're listening, it's probably two days after April the 9th when my book has come out, Essential Wilderness Navigation, that I co-authored with Tracy Trimble. But here's how this is a win-win. I just don't like to say, hey, please buy my book. I'm just not a fan of that. So what I'm going to do is I have pulled out a tidbit of information from each chapter in the book. There are a total of 11 chapters in this book. And so what I thought I'd do is to encourage you to buy the book, obviously, is tell you a little bit more about it. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to pull a tidbit out of each of these chapters and share it with you so that you can leave today's podcast with yourself being better prepared on wilderness navigation. Just as an overview Again, there are three specific sections in this new book, Essential Wilderness Navigation. Look in the description below for a link to the book. Section one is what we titled The Essentials of Wilderness Navigation. Chapter one is how to use maps and read them. Chapter two, how to choose the right compass. Three, global positioning systems and other useful technology. Number four, other items you need to do land navigation right or to look cool or both which is the favorite title of any chapter I've ever written. Number five is what to do if it all goes wrong. In section two, we have what we're calling next level skills to round out your knowledge. Chapter six is using day and night sky to point you in the right direction. Chapter seven is using flora and fauna. That's reading trees and plants and puddles and all that kind of stuff. Chapter eight, which is a pretty close contender for my favorite naming of a chapter, using eighth grade math skills to navigate like a boss. How about that one? 
Section three is specialized practical use of navigation skills. Chapter nine covers wilderness navigation for search and rescue. Chapter 10 covers navigating while, ar while armed, uh, especially for those that like to hunt, whether you're hunting animals or whether you're hunting for tactical use, law enforcement, military. And chapter 11 is tips and tricks to help scouts and families learn wilderness navigation together. So that's an overview. So let's dig into these chapters as we move through them. So in the first one, where we discuss a map, here's the tidbit I wanted to point out for you. And again, these are all things that you can use after the podcast today. You don't need to buy the book, but these will be helpful for those of you who are interested in the topic or maybe even already have a skill set and may enlighten you on some things that are new and coming your way. Uh, but again, obviously, I'd love for you to buy the book. The first chapter covers maps and everything that goes along with them. And one thing I wanted to pull out from this chapter for you is basically when you're looking at a map, all those grid lines and tick marks and everything that are on the side, what in the heck do all those things represent? Well, those represent various different types of grid systems. And grid systems are the way that we come to an understanding of how we appear on planet Earth. I've had classes that I've taught for school programs and actually some adult programs too, where they see those lines that are on a map that represent the grid lines and think there's actually some sort of mapping or fence or something out there that's on the earth that represents all that. So so you may laugh when you hear that, but just please know that there's a lot of people that do that and think that. And so if you have an opportunity to help people with navigation, help them. So there's about four primary systems in use that are out there. And I like to start with the one that most of us are familiar with, and that's latitude and longitude. So when you look on a map and you're looking for that lat and long, uh, it's probably the oldest known method for for map grids that is available, and most maps will have it on there. And it's still very heavily used by pilots, whether that is a pilot of a ship or an aircraft. Uh, uh, those pilots typically use lat and long, depending upon uh, what type of service that they're in, whether it's a commercial service or a military. Which brings us to the military grid reference system, which is called the MGRS. That's a metric-based system used by the United States military. So you'll see MGRS protractors, which may, we may discuss a little bit later. Another one is the United States National Grid System, and that's a metric-based system um, that more and more first responders are beginning to use, including uh, FEMA. FEMA is all about utilizing the United States National Grid System, and a lot of the more active and more up-to-date search and rescue teams are also using USNG. And it matches up rather perfectly with MGRS, which makes it a good system use. There, there's a couple of small tidbits that change out depending on whether you're using United States National Grid System or the Military Grid Reference System. And this book, guess what? This book goes into detail of how to be able to tell. And last but not least is a UTM, uh, Universal Transverse Mercator. That, again, is another metric-based system commonly used by search and rescue personnel. Um, one of the things that we cover in the book is basically I show a point on the map in this chapter, and then I give you the coordinates from all of those different grid reference systems and lay it out in a table for you. And I do that so that you can see 
basically how the MGRS matches up to USNG and how the UTM changes a little bit more, how Latin long is entirely different from that. But I also go into the different formats on how Latin long even lay themselves out. For example, some Latin long systems are degrees, minutes, seconds, and some are degrees in decimals and minutes, and some of them are also in just decimals. For example, instead of 38 degrees, three hours, 18 minutes, for example, they might just say 38.05555, what have you, degrees. And so you don't have to worry about the minutes and seconds. That's typically what you'll see on Google Maps and stuff of that nature. And so they're fairly easy to use. But again, it is really important to know which grid reference system you're utilizing, particularly if you're in a team. And uh, we'll get into the importance of that later when we discuss GPSs here in just a minute. So let's move it on to chapter two, which is all about compasses. And what I thought I'd pull out of the book for this one is the different terms for readings on a compass because you'll hear azimuth and heading and bearing and any number of sort of different things. So I thought I'd let you know what the differences in those are. Azimuth is basically the horizontal, think about it, is the horizontal angle or direction of what you are reading on the compass. The mount will be between zero degrees and 360 degrees. So if you look at the face of a compass, it's going to go to 360 degrees. This is the most accurate and the one that should be employed when using a compass. So if you're given a measurement, let's say, for example, 275 degrees to be used on your compass, then this means your azimuth is 275 degrees. And you should set your compass accordingly and then use it to navigate. A heading, although all these words get used in a channel interchangeably is a little bit different. The term heading is something that's used in relation to something that is moving, for example, an aircraft or a ship or a car, for example, or, uh, as three examples for you. It is the direction your nose is pointing while traveling. So sometimes that might be where you're moving on the compass and might be where you're going. It might be something different. This is basically the nose on your face, like a canoe, a vehicle, a ship, or aircraft or something. Even more accurately is this word bearing. And this is a measurement that usually relates to one of the four primary cardinal directions. For example, uh, if we look at 45 degree azimuth on your compass, that is not going to be the same thing as 45 degree bearing. On a bearing, what you're going to have some is basically how it relates to the four cardinal directions. For example, 45 degree azimuth could also be stated as 45 degrees north, meaning that the measurement in question is basically 45 degrees from north. So think about it. What would 90 degrees, which is due east? You could also say that's 90 degrees north. Not saying you would. I'm just saying that's something to keep in mind. I saw this a lot. I used to do survey work for a natural gas utility. I used to see this a lot when we would look at O survey maps and stuff of that nature. So you might see that on some of your uh, older maps for property and stuff of that nature. Chapter three is all about GPSs, and this is one of those things. Uh, I have, I have obviously, I have the book. That is Essential Wilderness Navigation. But within that book, we have what I wrote as sidebars. And the publisher, uh, Page Street Publishing, pulled these out and, and made them a different color so they stand out. And the book is absolutely com com completely packed full of these little sidebars. 
And the one that I have, or I have several in each chapter, but this one I pulled out for our discussion today is called The Most Overlooked Issue with GPS. And th- and here's what it is. I've got two or three paragraphs here on this and a photograph for a GPS. But think about it. You get a GPS, it has a datum grin like we were talking about earlier, Latin long, UTM, and each one of those have... Uh, well, I said datum, but they have a grid system and they have a datum set when that was done. 1983, 1927, and any number of things. And I detail all that in the chapter on maps as well. But when you get a GPS, it's set to one of those grid systems. And so what you need to do if you're ever going to use a paper map in conjunction with it, or if you're going to speak to someone else about coordinates, they need to be on the same exact datum set and they need to be on the same coordinate system. Because if you're not, you're really talking apples to orange the oranges there. You're really not talking about the same pieces of information. You've got to have the same grid system in reference for each person on your team, your unit, or your family, whoever it might be. All right, moving on to chapter four. And chapter four is the one on all the items you need to look cool. Now there's a bunch of, there's a large section in here on map protractors. And so if you don't know what those are, you need to get the book, check that out, because they're a vital piece of equipment. We talk about ham radios, radio usage. We got common ways to uh, send information across the radio system so that it's efficient and effective when you're sharing information. But one of the things that I think personally this book is is worth every penny for, and it has nothing to do with this, which navigation really, is I have several different sidebars that discuss estimation like if you look at a hillside and it's two miles away can you determine without any sort of measuring device whether it's a compass or anything can you estimate just by looking at it how far two hilltops are apart and i have a section in there on how to do that how do you estimate slope you can use your compass for that i'll show how to do that in this section right here uh, this sidebar i pulled out is, is called estimating time for backcountry travel there's a real common usage called uh, the Naismith rule. Uh, William Naismith was the guy that came up with this. And he basically enjoyed just getting out and walking around in the mountains of Scotland, which is pretty cool. And what he came up with was a formula. It's really beautiful in its simplicity, and it, and it goes like this. He determined that the average person should allow one hour for every three miles of travel. In addition to this, he determined you should add 30 minutes for every 1,000 feet or 305 meters of ascent. So think about it. One hour for every three miles or basically five kilometers. So if you're going to travel 10K, you should, you know, on a flat ground, you should add in uh, or allow about two hours to travel that. That's average, right? But if you're going up in elevation, add another 30 minutes for 1,000 feet. So, for example, if you're traveling that same 10K, on flat ground, that is, but from point A to point B, where your ending point is, at point B, you go up a thousand feet in elevation because that's going to slow you down. You add in another 30 minutes. So, going from flat ground, the same exact distance, but going up a thousand meters on your second trip around, it's probably going to take about an hour and a half just because of the increased difficulty of going up. In elevation. So that's one of, I think I've got 10 or 11 different ways of estimating distance and angles and slopes and all kinds of stuff. And I show you how, I mean, I estimate, I show you how to estimate how much time you have left in the day. 
so that you know how much time you have available to you to set up a shelter or set up your hammock and build a fire and cook those hot dogs or whatever it is you're going to fix. All right, in chapter number five, I have a section on what to do if everything goes wrong, all your navigation skills, everything you learn in the book. And that's something I should bring up. In each chapter of the book, I have a practical exercise at the end of each section or each chapter. And Tracy was very instrumental in putting all the questions together. Tracy Trimble's co-author on this one. I wrote the book. You know, eh, it's hard to say that I wrote the book because I wrote most of the words, I guess, but I, there's just absolutely no way I could have written this book without Tracy Tremble. And he was, he was there making sure he, that, we, number one, we got the outline together on what we wanted to cover. And then I wrote what we were supposed to cover. He checked and double-checked and made sure that what we were doing was right, along with myself. And then he really was instrumental in developing the the questions at the end of each chapter. Each chapter has questions at the end of it to check your knowledge and make sure you have it. And uh, it also has some troubleshooting sections because we know from teaching so many classes, and Tracy's taught all our classes at Nature Reliance School and Land Navigation, we kept seeing things over and over and over again uh, from your average ordinary person coming into a class. And so we wrote all that into this book and have it in as a troubleshooting section. But this chapter right here, if it all goes wrong, we talk about signaling a lot, several different ways to signal to get to get help. And one that I put is a little different than might be surprising for a navigation book, which is choosing the best wood for signal fires. So oftentimes you're you, you're caught out and you have a fire because you for body warmth or some of that nature, and you want to be able to to build a fire. There's two main reasons that you want to have that fire. One is your sustainment, and these are the types of woods that you will utilize to have a hot fire. So, for example, you want to choose hardwoods. You want to choose that oak. You want to use that real hard maple. You want to choose something like an ash or something that's very, ash is very, very slow burning. But it makes some really good coals, for example. But those don't make actually real big flames, and they don't put off a lot of smoke unless they're wet. And so number two is signaling woods. These are woods that are a lot less dense. And uh, most of your conifers are like this. Trees like pine, cedar, hemlocks, or spruces, or something of that nature. They burn very quick, and they burn very hot. And they put off more flame, and they turn. the. And because of this, they also serve as a fantastic light source or a signaling source. So you can use different types of green fauna to... Uh, or green flora to put on them so that you can have a smoky fire and any number of things. And we have a whole chapter dedicated on signaling, not just wood, but all number of different things. Okay, next chapter, uh, we go into using day and night sky. And what I thought I would utilize and discuss at the very least is this idea of uh, how to use the sun. Everybody is somewhat familiar with the shadow stick method. What they're not familiar with is that basically most of the year it's very inaccurate and it doesn't give you a real good east-west line. Now, what we do know is that the sun at midday, which is not always at 12 o'clock, okay? So listen to that. Midday does not always happen at 12 o'clock. So we discussed that in the book too. That's a side subject matter. But at midday, the sun is going to be due south. So you can get with a, if you use a shadow stick, you can get a really good north-south line due to the sun being north-south at midday. 
However, just because of the tilt of the earth and the seasons and any and the placement of the sun in the sky, you're not necessarily going to get a fantastic east-west line with a shadow stick. So that's one of the things that a lot of people just don't grasp very well. Next chapter, <clears throat> again, we discuss using flora and fauna. And one of the things, if you've followed me very long, I talk about this all the time, but uh, one of the most inherited pieces of information that is false is that moss always grows on the north side of trees and that's absolutely untrue okay now here's what we know about and this is one of the sidebars i pulled out in this chapter and there's a whole chapter on this kind of stuff okay so but but uh, here's what moss likes to do moss really likes moisture it does not like being dried out it doesn't survive very well in a condition where it's sitting in full sunlight or something of that nature and because of that, and because in the northern hemisphere, the sun is primarily in the southern sky, moss will more often than not grow on the north side of a tree. Now, with that said, that is a tree that is so low in the middle of a field and no other shade is cast upon it from any other trees or anything of that nature. Okay, So yes, if that is what you're looking at, you're looking at one tree in the middle of wide open field, there's no other shade, there is a good chance that if there is moss on it, it will grow on the north side of that tree. However, and this is really important, in a forested area where there's multiple trees and tree canopy and any number of things, sunlight gets to the forest floor in a lot of really different directions. And more importantly, shadows are cast a lot more prominently in a forest. And so there's any number of places that moss will find a really nice home in a forested area. If it's in the shade, like say there's a tree that's a massive, let's say there's a massive white pine, for example, and it casts a shadow into a forest, there's a good chance that some moss will grow in the shadow of that white pine tree because it's going to be casting a shadow 365 days of the year, right? And that may or may not be on the north side of the trees where that moss is growing. So that's something very important to remember. All right, next chapter covers using your eighth grade math. So basically what I did is think about it. If you think about uh, the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, and you can apply that triangle to a map, there's any number of things that you can figure out. You can figure out the distance between two points. Uh, you can just determine the distance of a hypotenuse if you have a, if you can form a right angle with any portion of a uh, map and so you can do a lot of measuring uh, with obviously the scale but you can also do some really good estimating laying out boxes circles triangles and any number of things so basically this chapter covers geometry and applying geometry to uh, land navigation, topography, and any number of things. I've got things in there for search and rescue users to utilize. We've got some things in there on how to uh, how to go out and search for mushrooms and not get lost by using boxes and circles and any number of things. So that's basically the whole chapter is taking those geometric geometric shapes and applying them to a map or the earth. And you don't necessarily even have to have an, a map. Think about it. If you know that a right triangle or let's better yet, you know, an isosceles triangle uh, should add up to 180 degrees, right? So if you have a compass and you have a good pace count, which we discussed pace count in here and how to utilize it effectively, you can have a starting point and walk out 
X amount of paces, whatever your pace count is for uh, whatever you want. You can Let's say you take 100 steps out through the woods. You can turn 60 degrees, take another 100 steps, t- turn another 60 degrees and take another 100 steps, and you should be right back where you started. And so you can utilize a triangle like that just knowing, just having a compass, for example, or even estimating that distance and be able to walk into an unknown area generally very very generally walk the same amount of steps and same angle and and go out and come back and not get yourself lost so pretty simple huh but pretty cool next chapter is all about search and rescue and how search and rescue can utilize navigation now you might be thinking hey i don't do search and rescue i have no need for that wrong Um, what we do is we go into the details of search and rescue and how you can set yourself up for success if a search and rescue team is searching for you, you've gotten lost, and uh, we do that in the other chapter where it all, if it all goes wrong, but we also do some more here, as well as we specifically wrote a chapter. Tracy's a, an incredibly active member of uh, search and rescue here in Kentucky, and so uh, he teaches both classes for us, and he teaches for some search and rescue teams here as well, and we wanted to offer those folks some ability to be utilized utilize land navigation skills and so think about it if you have a theoretical there you know four classifications of a search a theoretical search a statistical search a deductive reasoning or a combination of those three and basically what we do is we take each of those different types of searches and we apply wilderness navigation techniques tool and show you how to utilize navigation so that you as a searcher don't get lost you as a person needs to be found can be found by the search and rescue team as well as if you ha- run incident command, how you can best communicate all these points to and from searchers, and that way everybody is effective team, they're efficient, and they get things done. Next chapter is all about if you're carrying a weapon for self-defense, whether you're in a tactical military unit, law enforcement, or you're carrying weapons for hunting. And what we do is we talk about intelligence gathering, from the perspective of navigation, for example, we go into template analysis, which is looking at a map and determining the areas your quarry is most likely located. So that could be a bad guy. That could also be a deer. That could also be turkey if you're a turkey hunter. And so basically you understand how to un- read the map and see where things might appear uh, that you're looking for. You can do maneuver analysis, which is by looking at the map, you know how to move through it. Uh, this is really important for a reconnaissance team if you're going into an area and you want to be able to recon an area and navigate like a boss in and out. Nobody see you. Uh, whether you're reconning an area for law enforcement or you're reconning an area for turkey that are strutting in a field and you want to be able to look at a map and go, hey, this is how I go about getting to that location efficiently and I don't scare the turkeys off. Then that's another one. And then breach analysis is basically once you determine, hey, I'm going to get to that turkey or I'm going to get to that bad guy, this is how we're going to hit it. This is how we're going to get in there. We're going to do what we need to do with our firearms, and then we're going to get out safely. And so uh, we walk you right through that, every bit of that. We walk you right through that. And so that's a very valuable piece of training. And last but not least, as far as chapters is concerned, we go through how to set up your family, your scout troops, your church groups, uh, your school classroom, any number of things that you can do with groups where you have younger people, older people working together, families, you know, whoever it might be. And we list several games that you can play and increase your skill set as a wilderness navigator. 
So one of the things is just simple. If you've never heard this before, is how do you remember the four cardinal directions? You know, I go into a lot of classrooms that study geography, and some of them say, "Never eat sour watermelon, never eat soggy waffles." And so we talk about that and give two or three others on ways to remember uh, northeast, south, and west. So you can pass that on to your homeschool group, your kids if you're a homeschool teacher, or any number of things. And then, without a doubt, the conclusion of the book is very important. It's what we call the Ten Commandments of Wilderness Navigation. Obviously, there's ten points here that summarize really the whole book. And so that, in its in and of itself, is worth every penny of the book. So that is all based upon uh, both our experiences reading a number of different navigation books and finding them lacking some things as well as teaching all these classes we've taught classes tracy has taught classes for nature law school which means you know a lot of average ordinary public sector civilians he's taught search and rescue he's taught federal law enforcement and so uh teaching all these classes me assisting him on those more often than not is just uh, putting all that together with our own experiences, uh, Tracy taught me how to do land navigation right, and that way uh, we can all help you to do what it is that you need to do to get outside and come home safely. So that's it, you all. Uh, this has been, without a doubt, a shameless plug for Essential Wilderness Navigation. Look in the description below. You'll see an Amazon link for that. We really appreciate it. Uh, as I record this, people are sending me text and messages on Facebook and all that stuff saying, hey, I got my book in, uh, the Kindle dropped last night and all that good stuff. So, yeah, I'm excited. This is like a big day. It's a big day for an author when the book drops. So you should be seeing those if you've already ordered them, as well as uh, if you're interested, you can pick it up. But if not, just listen to this podcast and it'll help you. So as always with the survival show podcast this has been craig coddle hey check out the sportsman's guide link in the description below that company's been fantastic as a sponsor for our podcast and we really appreciate that can't thank them enough so thank you very much to the sportsman's guide check out the link below and uh, that'll tell you more about them and all that good stuff be positive keep it simple stay sharp